Well, one thing that this uh, virus has made clear is that uh, I'm in the vulnerable age group. <laughs> the group over 65. So hardly a day goes by that I am not reminded of this fact. So there's no denying it. I might as well face up to the fact that I'm in that final quarter of my life. And sometimes that makes me to wonder how my life will end. Will I have made any difference in the world? Did I make some wrong turns along the way? And maybe you've wondered the same thing about your life. One such life was a little boy named Lucius, who was born December 15th, 37 A.D., in uh, Antium, a city on the Mediterranean coast, just a few miles south of the city of Rome. His parents were Gnaeus and Agrippina, probably people that you've never heard of. But you may have heard of Lucius's great-grandfather, Caesar Augustus. Well, Lucius's father was, uh, died when, when he was only three. His mother was exiled to a remote island for plotting to overthrow the emperor Caligula. The boy was sent to live with his aunt. When Caligula was assassinated by the Praetorian Guard, Claudius became emperor. And so Agrippina poisoned her second husband and married Claudius, who was also her uncle. She then had Claudius' first wife murdered, and she persuaded Claudius to adopt her son, and Lucius took the name Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Drusus, Germanicus. At the age of 16, he married his stepsister, Octavia. Claudius died just a few years later, probably poisoned by Agrippina, and her son, Nero, became emperor as a teenager. But Agrippa had, she, Agrippina, she had other plans to rule through her son, and so she poisoned a few more possible rivals, including Nero's stepbrother, Britannicus. Now, the first few year, years of his rule seemed to go pretty well. He, well. he ruled well, if not somewhat incompetently. But then Nero uh, had his mother killed and then had an affair with a woman named um, Papia Sabina and his wife Octavia. He had her executed on the trumped-up charges of adultery. And from then on, it was downhill. While he was away on business, a fire broke out in the city of Rome, and, and over 70% of the city burned. Nero came back from his business trip trying to, to oversee the disaster, but it wasn't long before rumors began to circulate that Nero himself had started the fire. It seemed a little too convenient for his plan to build a new palace. And so Nero began to look around for somebody to blame, and he found the perfect scapegoat, a new religious group who followed a, a man named Christus who had been crucified by the Roman governor in Judea, Pontius Pilate. Members of this religious group were generally of the lower class, and they talked about a new kingdom and a new king, which was somewhat threatening. And they had a secret meal where it was said that they ate uh, human flesh and drank human blood. In fact, the historian Tacitus wrote that Christians were hated for their enormities and that it was simply a pernicious superstition. 
So Nero had a few of the church leaders arrested. He tortured them to gain the names of other church members and had them arrested and thrown in prison. Thousands were put to death in the arena. Some of them were fed to wild animals. Some were nailed to a cross, covered in tar, and lit to provide uh, a lamplight in the evening. And while most citizens felt their execution was justified, the ghastly way they were put to death began to arouse sympathy among the people. By 68 AD, Nero's support began to crumble. Provincial governors began to denounce him. His Praetorian guards, charged with protecting him, withdrew their support. And then the Roman Senate declared Nero an enemy of the state. The next day, Nero took his own life. Those were the final days of Nero. Now contrast that with uh, the birth of a, of a baby boy named Saul, born to Jewish parents around 5 AD in the city of Tarsus in the province of Cilicia, modern-day Turkey. Now he was born a citizen of Rome, so his father must have been a citizen as well. And generally, Roman citizenship was only for freeborn natives who were born in the city. But as the empire began to grow and expand, that citizenship was opened up to others. Sometimes you can even buy your citizenship. Now, we have no idea how a Jewish family in Tarsus gained this Roman citizenship. But we do know that this fact alone would have put uh, Saul's family into the upper social elite of the city. As a Roman citizen, Paul had three names. His forename, his family name, and then an additional name. And we only know the last name, which was Paulus. You see, his Jewish name was, was Saul. And it was his Roman citizenship that got him out of hot water several times when it looked like he was going to be beaten and tortured. You see, every Roman citizen had the right to a fair public trial. We also know that Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin and that uh, the most famous person from that tribe was the very first king of Israel whose name was also Saul. And we know that Saul called himself a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that meant that his bloodline ran all the way back to Benjamin. And it meant that, that he spoke Hebrew while most uh, of the Jewish people at that time were speaking Greek or Aramaic. And we also know that his parents sent him to Jerusalem as a youth to be educated by the famous scholar and, and leader, Gamaliel, who was a, a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a, a political and religious body of 70 leaders who cared for the internal affairs of Judea while the, the Roman governor maintained peace and order and, and collected the taxes. And we also know that Paul was a member of the Pharisees, and his occupation was a tent maker. And we know that Paul and his fellow Pharisees were, were zealous for keeping the ancient laws of Israel and believed that all of these laws were to be kept in their totality. There was not to ever be any compromise. And so when this man Jesus began his ministry, he constantly butted heads with these religious leaders over the application of the law especially over the observance of the Sabbath and, and hanging out with people who did not even pretend to keep the law. And when Jesus was executed some three years later and his body safely entombed, they must have breathed a sigh of relief. 
but it was not to last. Three days later, reports began to circulate that this Jesus had risen from the grave and had appeared to many of his followers. And then some 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the the Holy Spirit comes in this powerful new way, and Peter Peter preached his very first sermon, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Miracles and, and supernatural healings begin to take place through the church, through the disciples. But then opposition A deacon in the church named Stephen is stoned to death, and Paul is there watching the whole thing, approving of the whole bloody mess, and he takes on the the mission of stopping what was called the way. But on his way to Damascus to arrest some Christians, he is blinded by a bright light, and he hears a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? And the voice responds, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And it changes Paul's life. God leads him to a man named Ananias who baptized Paul, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he receives his sight back. And he immediately begins to preach. He runs into opposition and has to leave Damascus in the middle of the night and and flee to Jerusalem. But his preaching in Jerusalem stirs up more hatred, so the church helps him to escape, and he returns to his hometown of Tarsus. Overnight, Paul goes from being a persecutor of the church to being persecuted. And everywhere that he goes, he seems to stir up controversy. Well, last week, Pastor Mark shared Paul's apostolic ministry of how for the next 30 years Paul makes three major trips throughout the empire, planting churches in all of the major cities. The only city that he hasn't visited yet is Rome. And so around 57 or 58 A.D., Paul decides he's going to go to Jerusalem, and, and then he's going to go to Rome. But the closer that he gets to Jerusalem, the, the more warning signs along the way that it's going to be a dangerous trip. You see, a prophet named Agabus shares with Paul a prophetic word that he will be arrested in Jerusalem, and everybody pleads with him not to go, not to make the journey, but Paul seems to have this sense of destiny about it. He says, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sure enough, he arrives in Jerusalem. He shows up at the temple. A riot breaks out. Roman soldiers show up to quell the disturbance. And it's so bad, the soldiers have to literally carry Paul away from the crowd to safety. And the commander thinks that Paul is some kind of Egyptian terrorist. They take him back to the barracks to interrogate him, but they're, and they're about ready to flog him. But before they do, before they, they, they get ready to, to flog him, Paul says, hey, by the way, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? And Luke records in Acts chapter 22 that the soldiers drew back immediately. They knew it was illegal to torture a Roman citizen Wouldn't be the last time that Paul's Roman citizenship would get him out of hot water. Paul is put into jail. A plot is discovered to kill him. The commander takes him under an armed escort to Caesarea. He has a hearing before Felix, the governor, but he passes them on to the next governor, Festus. And for two years, 
Paul languishes in jail. Finally, he appeals to Caesar himself, and Festus, glad to get rid of him, says to him, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And Paul is shipped off to Rome. Now at this point it gets a little confusing, the timeline, but most scholars believe that Paul arrived in Rome about 60 A.D., spent two years under house arrest, and then was released, probably went on to Spain, returned to Rome, and then was arrested along with Peter during the roundup of church leaders by Nero. And this is where we find Paul as he writes his very last letter to Timothy. We find that he has some very intimate words that the apostle Paul has written to his young protege. He's been instructing him on on how to be a good leader, how to be a pastor. But Paul realizes that his days on earth are numbered. He's in a Roman prison, and he expects soon to be executed for his faith in Christ. And he's so grateful for Timothy. He calls him, my dear son. And he encourages Timothy to use his spiritual gifts and, and not to be shy or timid about sharing the faith. He wants Timothy to be faithful to Christ. In chapter 3, he reminds Timothy, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions that I endured. And yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted, but will be persecuted. Makes me a little uncomfortable. But then in chapter 4, Paul says this. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Remarkable. Paul is near the end of his life, and he has total confidence in how he has lived it. He has no remorse because he knows that in heaven that he'll receive the crown of righteousness from God. Indeed, he believes that all of us who long for Christ's appearing will also receive the victor's crown as a reward for living a righteous life. What would that be like to come to the end of your life and to have this kind of confidence that you have lived your life well, to have no regrets? How did Paul do that? How did he arrive at that place? Well, Paul compares his life to a race. And I like that. I can relate to that. I, I have been a runner all of my life. In fact, I used to run marathons. For you non-runners, that's like about 26 miles. And today I still run, but if I can run three miles, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. But if I have learned anything about running, it is simply this, that consistent daily training is absolutely crucial. And you need to have a plan and you need to stick with it in the summer heat, in the winter frost, in the snow, and the rain and the fog. And especially on those days when you don't feel like getting out of bed. 
on those days when the last thing you want to do is to put on those running shoes. You do it anyway because you understand that it's the only way that you're ever going to cross the finish line come race day. You see, the spiritual life is no different. If you want to cross the finish line, come judgment day, there are some things that we need to know and some things we need to do. And the first thing we need to remember is you've you got to start with the end in mind. You see, before you start training, you need to know what the goal is so you'll know when you cross the finish line. And here's what I think it is for the Christian. It's becoming like Christ it's the process of becoming like Christ in, in my thoughts, in my feelings, and in my lifestyle. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, the Bible says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You see, when I get to heaven, I don't think that, that Jesus is going to ask me how well I memorized the Bible. You see, he doesn't want us just to be filled with Bible facts. It's, it's not just about our cognitive development, but it's about our character development. See, if I know the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but I, I live like the devil, guess what? I'm not reaching my goal. I'm not going to cross the finish line. Now, here's what I need to know, and that's this. That God's goal for you is your spiritual maturity. That God is totally committed to that happening in your life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul writes, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his Son. You will grow in Christ's likeness if you want to. Now, I think it requires intentionality. I think it requires commitment. I think it requires some work and some effort and some time. You see, God does it in you. God is committed to that happening, but it requires cooperation from us. We have to have a plan and then make it happen and follow through. It's kind of like physical, physical exercise. If you, want to make a, if you want to get in shape, you have to make a commitment to it. You need a plan. You may even need a trainer, someone experienced to, to help you develop a plan and then encourage you to follow through. You see, getting in good physical shape is it's not automatic. In fact, I would say it's just the opposite. After you hit 20, it's pretty much downhill the rest of your life. <laughs> it's the same in your spiritual fitness program. And for me, that has meant developing some, some habits. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of 1 Timothy chapter 4, writes this. Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gym are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so making you fit both today and forever. So Paul has the long view in mind. He's got eternity in mind. See, spiritual maturity is learning some spiritual exercises and then sticking with it until they become habits. For me, that's been prayer uh, meditating and reading Scripture on a daily basis, being a part of a, of a small group, regular worship, uh, finding ways to serve others in the name of Jesus and, and being willing and able to share my faith. And what I've learned over the years is the process. It's a process that takes time. It takes perseverance. I've discovered there are no shortcuts, you, and you can't give up when the going gets hard, and the going will get hard. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. 
It says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. You see, Paul kept his focus on, on his purpose. Paul kept his focus on his mission. He knew that he could never surrender to his difficult life circumstances, and so he chose to surrender to his mission instead. He wasn't concerned about his imprisonment. He was concerned about spreading the gospel of Christ. He didn't complain about his unfair arrest or treatment that he had received. He, he didn't even ask for a petition drive demanding his release. He was only thinking about how God was going to use him during this incarceration Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he says, because of my chains, not in spite of my chains, but because of them, most of the brothers and sisters have been made more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Without fear. You see, when we stay focused on our purpose, when we stay focused on the mission, everything else takes its proper perspective. So let me ask you a question. What's your purpose? Why are you here? Do you know? For what purpose did God create you? And, and what are you willing to die for? You see, until you and I have a, have a purpose for our lives that's worth living and dying for, we'll live our entire life without direction or meaning. Think about Paul's life. How easy it would have been for him sitting in prison to think, here I am, the last days of my life, and I've spent the last 30 years being chased out of town after town, people wanting to kill me. I've been beaten, stoned, whipped, shipwrecked. I have labored and toiled to spread the gospel, often without sleep, cold and naked, thirsty and hungry. And how easy it would have been for Paul to have looked back upon all of that and to feel that his life was a failure. How nothing went right. No family. No home. No bank account. But Paul believes that it has been worth it all. That he has followed God's plan for his life that he has fought the good fight, that he has finished the race, and he's kept the faith. The emperor Nero had Paul's life ended about 66 A.D. Paul's life ended on a chopping block in a prison cell. And yet his influence has been felt by billions and billions of people to this day. But two years after he had Paul killed, Nero took his own life. At that point, he had more wealth, he had more power, he had more prestige than any other person on the face of the planet. And yet he died at the age of 29, lonely and paranoid. And no one was sad to see him go. You see, Paul knew his purpose on earth, and he was faithful to that purpose to the end. It gave him strength, and it gave him courage to never give up. 
And once you discover your purpose, once you begin to understand why God put you here, it will give you amazing endurance to finish the race of your life in great hope and victory. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to start with the end in mind. To understand our purpose and our mission here on earth. And God, that is a gift that comes from you. As we begin to surrender our, our lives to you, as we begin to follow your will, as we begin to understand our, our calling here on earth. God, we want to be like Jesus. And we know that we're already in that process, that you have a great plan for us. And so help us, oh God. Help us to be your faithful ambassador here. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.